353, Chapter 35. Book Talk begins at 325 and 3227. Welcome to Craftlet, the podcast for crafters who love books. I'm your host, Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from where the Delaware River meets the Old York Road, New Hope, Pennsylvania. Episode 353, Strange Fire. This episode brought to you by Survival Organs. Handmade organs to throw, love, or cuddle. And Knit Circus, the e-newsletter bringing you three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can find out more at www.knitcircus.com. And March Hare Yarns, hand-dyed yarn just for you. You can visit the March Hare at Etsy. And Pennywise Consulting, technology solutions for your small business. Links to all of our sponsors' pages can be found in the show notes at craftlit.com. Remember, their support for the show is what keeps it free for you. So go take a look. Well, hello. The first thing I want to bring to your attention is, if you are listening to this podcast on an app, you will notice, I hope, I hope it shows, that there is a phone number at the top of the show notes. Tap that phone number and your phone will call the Craftlet listener line. It can record, I think, up to four minutes of quality audio, depending on how good your phone connection is, and that audio will immediately be sent to me as an audio file so that I can play it on the next episode. And you can really and truly participate in the conversation in an easier way than having to get to a computer and write out an email or try and tap out a huge email on your phone or tablet, which can be tiresome. So that was very exciting. I am very excited about it anyway. I hope you are as well. And to show you just how good the audio sounds, I have a sample that I received in my mailbox today. Hello. I just wanted to say how much I love Craftlet. Heather, you are like my very favorite teacher from high school who made me love reading in the first place. Your comments and background add richness and thoughtfulness to the books I never would have known about, and you really help us get all the inside jokes. You make me love books that I never would have appreciated before Craftlet, and thank you for that. Which just made my day. But you don't have to call and say lovely things like that. You can call and say hey, I have this idea about the book, or why did you say that about the book? Or, hmm, I thought this about the book. And I can play those kinds of comments too. And then there's the name of this podcast. Strange Fire is this episode. I'll tell you, it was one of those weird moments where there's a confluence of events that just makes sense. And on Monday this week, driving my kids hither and yon for their summer camp activities, which they are greatly enjoying, I was listening to North and South, the, this week's chapter, chapter 35, or volume two, chapter 10. And I was listening to the chapter again, and there is a description of Margaret, not, not too far into the chapter. There is a description of Margaret with her eyes all aglow with strange fire. Not with a strange fire, not with the strange fire, but just 
strange fire. Okay, that's part one. Part two is picking up thing two. He said, Mom, can we listen to music? So I turned on music, the little iPod connector thingy. So it's it's my iPod being randomized. And what song comes on? Strange Fire by the Indigo Girls. But it doesn't stop there. Because my husband went to university with the Indigo Girls, and Amy Ray had written that song right before he wrote and directed his own version of the medieval mystery plays. And he heard the song and thought it would be perfect for God to sing at the beginning of the show. So with Amy Ray's permission and Michelle Malone as musical director, he used that song and a few other Indigo Girls songs for his show. And so God starts the show by coming in singing Strange Fire. And if you've never heard this Indigo Girls song, this was the title track on their first album, which was originally, I think, put out locally in Atlanta. And after their eponymous first album, Indigo Girls, at some point, I think they re-released Strange Fire with some new mixes and stuff. But the original song, Strange Fire, is beautiful, and it always makes me think of the mystery plays. And my husband and the shows he directed and wrote. So just weird. It's weird. It's also weird because here we are all in Pennsylvania and everybody's happy. And I think we all look younger because we're so much happier. And my husband, once again, is very much the way that he was when I met him at UCLA 26 years ago. So that's kind of fun. But Strange Fire is an interesting story. If you are not familiar with the biblical origins of this term, it's a thing. It's a thing thing. And I'm sure it will show up again in some book somewhere, or you will hear it in your life somewhere now that, now that you know what it is. Uh, you may recall Moses had a brother, Aaron. Aaron became the high priest once the Ten Commandments were received. Aaron was in charge of all of the rituals, the sacrifices, the burnt offerings, and all of that stuff. And God stipulated very, very clearly how things were to be done. And Aaron, being the high priest, was the, the main guy responsible for all of that. For whatever reason, and often there are no reasons given in the Bible for things that happened there. I mean, they didn't do backstory <laughs> back then. For whatever reason, Aaron's two sons decided to take it upon themselves to bring a sacrifice to the altar of the Lord. And the kids did it wrong. And they were immediately smote. <laughs> Smoted. God smite them. Smited. Smote. God burned them up is what happened. And bye-bye, sons of Aaron. There were two more sons of Aaron who stepped up and took the place, but those were his two, two eldest. And the lesson you learn is don't mess with God's instructions right? So if the Ten Commandments are supposed to be listened to, and you're kind of going, I don't know, it's kind of squishy. I don't know if you really have to pay attention to this one. The next thing you you read, or the story appears in the book of Exodus, the book of Leviticus, and the book of Numbers. Eventually, after learning about the Ten Commandments, you see what happens to people who don't obey properly. And wouldn't that be an excellent reason to follow instructions, people, <laughs> because otherwise you get burnt up, dead. They were they were still bodies. They weren't piles of ash. It wasn't like uh, turning to a pillar of salt. But as you might expect, there are some interesting 
understandings of what the story meant and why this punishment was meted out. And uh, I will link to the Wikipedia page because I think it's kind of interestingly laid out. I've never seen this done before, where they give kind of a generic summary of the story with as many details as they can and, and a uh, fairly decent, I think, translation. And then they have the Catholic point of view on the story, the Protestant point of view on the story, and the Jewish point of view on the story. And it's it's inter- it's interesting because the Jewish one <laughs> is the one where it's a discussion, it's a it's a debate because you put four of us in a room and you get seven opinions. So strange fire is what the two sons put on the altar. It wasn't the correct fire. They weren't the correct people to be lighting the fire. And the fire was strange in the, the old way, not something that had been seen before or, or something that you're unfamiliar with. It wasn't the fire that should have been there. And that goes along with Margaret. And we'll get to this more later, but Margaret's eyes shouldn't be glowing at this point. Something else is going on. So, now that there's that teaser planted in your mind, I have a couple of things to share. One of those things is, you may recall me mentioning before Tara Swiger, who runs Starship, and she has a, a blog, and she wrote the book Market Yourself, and she's kind of the guru of running crafty businesses, and, and pretty much everyone who works with her right now are feral female, but it doesn't have to be that way just just kind of happens to be that way. It's not an injunction or anything, but she has a, a new class that's coming up. And actually, it's it will have started by the time this goes live. It's not a bad idea, though, to get on her Twitter feed so that you can find out when things like this are going to happen, because this one is going out live and free. And then after the live event, you can still get access to all of the class materials and information and everything, but it's for a fee, which, you know, is not such a bad thing when you're talking about getting really helpful step-by-step information on how to market your small business, especially a small crafty business. There aren't many people who understand that, and it is very helpful to have someone like Tara around who, who does get it and can really hear what you need and help you do it. Either way, I am linking you to that particular class's webpage, and I'll give you a link to Tara's Twitter handle so that you can follow her and and keep on top of things. You can also follow her her blog to find out more about uh, the goings-on at Starship as well, and when, when that opens for joining and things like that. I wanted to thank the listeners who have joined our Moore's Bag pod. That's uh, the thing I talked about, I think it was last week. I recorded two episodes last week, so I can't remember which one was last week. And the Moore's Bags are those bags that the awesome woman in the UK started making and giving away. And so now she has made, both on her own and with the help of tons of humans all around the planet, she has made many, many, many cloth bags to help replace the plastic bags that kill lots of ocean life. And if you've seen any of the statistics that are coming out lately about fishing and fish and, oh my goodness, oceans, uh, this seems really, really important now. Yikes. 
especially if you like to eat fish. You may want to make some Morris bags. So the joining process is a little different than I thought. You request to join. I then get a ping in my email. I go invite you. And then you're given a link that lets you into the group. So that's the process. doesn't take very long, but it is a process. And since we're in the final third of our book, I am starting to work on our next book. I'm not ready to announce it yet, but I am ready to announce that if you are interested in sponsoring an episode or being a sponsor for the whole book, that information is now on the website. It's in the show notes. There's a link in the show notes, but for, for this week, remember I've rearranged the show notes now so that you've got this week stuff that's going on for this whole month and then stuff that's just always going on in case you need the handy links right there for you. But it starts with the most current stuff at the top of the page. This is one of those things. You can click for a PDF explaining sponsorship options and that information is also linked to from the sidebar under support the show. So if you are interested in getting your name or your small business's name or your pattern shop's name out in front of a bunch of really smart, literary, fun, funny people, <laughs> which, which seems to describe craftlet people, uh, this is an option for you. So take a look at that. So in crafty news, last week on Friday, I went to The Tangled Web, which is a lovely little store. Over, it's not so little, it's actually pretty big. Uh, down on Germantown Avenue, I think. I don't know, my phone told me where to go. On the west side of Philadelphia, we had a lovely time because they have a summer camp. And so every Friday they meet from one to four and they're working on different projects. And one of the things that they are doing this summer is they are using what would Madame Defarge knit as their main text, which is really cool. So I was able to come and talk to them a little bit about how the book came about and what Craftlet is and how cooperative press works and what cognitive anchoring is because everything, you know, everything I do is all kind of tangentially related or at least related through me being the hub to all of these things. But a more lovely group you could not have asked for. And I got to see Barb, who went on the Craftlet tour in 2010 to London, Bath and Wales, run by the marvelous Diane at Holiday Vacations. And that was a treat because I haven't seen Barb since we went and came back. And I was able to knit another 14 stitches. I still have not been able to get myself back into the groove. I finished the really difficult Ed writing gig, which is great because I have a life again, but it also means I have no job right now. So I'm a little panicky and I'm going to take the time to work on the cognitive anchoring book right now and some kind of webinar class thing. It will happen. But in the midst of all this, I got a very interesting email from listener Irina. She wrote, I just finished listening to the last two episodes and was delighted to learn something new, not only about the books, which is a constant pleasure, but also something related to my work. I shoot lasers at different materials for a living. <laughs> all right. I laughed and cheered all at the same time when I read that because I thought, oh my gosh, 
if I tell my sons that I have a listener who shoots lasers at things for for her job, they are going to want to go move in <laughs> and and just just be there, be close, be close by lovingly to this fabulous job. So I shoot lasers onto different materials for a living. And one of the experiments we are working on is to hit a thin film of a particular material with a strong laser pulse and see it transforming from insulator to metal. How cool is that, right? Since we need to run these measurements when the temperature of the film is very low, well below freezing, we have to put the sample into a vacuum so that water from the air does not condense and ruin the experiment. And guess what? We are using a zeolite sorption pump to do it. It looks like zeolite can absorb not only filthy smelling bacteria, but pretty much everything. The idea for the pump is rather simple. You cool the zeolite to negative 200 degrees Fahrenheit in liquid nitrogen and connect it to a sealed container with the sample and the zeolite sucks out all the air. It is actually very good at that. After proper pumping, the pressure drops to one one hundred thousandth of the atmospheric pressure. I counted the zeros. That's the real number. What was a surprise for me is to learn that number one, zeolite is a natural material, and number two, it has some household uses. Frankly, I thought this is one of the miracle materials people have learned to make. But as usual, nature beat us. Isn't that cool? Oh my gosh, I was so... I was so excited. So now my son is saying, my 14-year-old is walking around going, DARPA. She works for DARPA. I'm like, I don't think she works for DARPA. No, she works for DARPA. She has, that's too cool what she does. She has to work for DARPA. So Irina, you have a fan. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and you can expect a knock on your door as soon as the boy learns how to drive. And you know, that made me think about Craftlet being crafty instead of knitty or sewy or quilty. You know, and it was fun to talk to Barb again because she does everything. She does everything. And she quilts. And and she's going to help me finish finally, now that I've got my sewing machine out, I can finally finish the crazy quilt that I started uh, in 2007, <laughs> I think. Holy cow. I actually think that's correct. So I was thinking about the crafty craftiness. And then when I got that email from Irina, I thought that's another kind of craftiness. I mean, shooting lasers, it sounds like alchemy, right? Shooting lasers into material to turn it into something else. That is just so cool and transformative and exciting. And it's also mathy and sciencey, which is great, but, but it's totally crafty. And then I also had this experience during the week of the car, this poor car. Our car is not young. It is a 12-year-old Saturn View SUV. It gets ridiculously good mileage. We get like 30 miles to the gallon on the highway. It's a great car. It is no longer being made because it's a Saturn, which means parts are no longer being made, which means stuff has to get jury-rigged sometimes. We had a thing with the bushings on the back axle joint where everything gets connected up together. And the bushings were shot and something with the axle was shot too. And there were no parts. 
this is back when we were in Virginia, we had to go to a junkyard in Idaho. And for those of you who don't live in the United States, Virginia is on the East Coast and Idaho is towards the Pacific Northwest. It's up in the north and it's right up there next to Washington, in between Washington and Montana. So just to get apart. So I started hearing this noise and it, I could start to feel it through the gas pedal and the brake pedal and the clutch. It was making me very nervous because it wasn't tied to the engine. And eventually by Tuesday, it sounded like I was driving a prop plane. So you have to imagine, you can hear the sound of the engine. You can hear it shifting. You, know, you can hear all that. But underneath it all, you can hear this increasingly loud prop plane. That kind of drone. I know it's like being on car talk, right? So finding a shop that could look at the noise after I dropped the boys off, that was drama. But I found this guy who was my grandfather. He's a one-stall car repair guy. He's called the car doctor here in New Hope. And he's been there for 21 years. He's been in the country for 23 years. He had the oddest accent and I couldn't place it. And it's because he was born in France, in Paris, to French parents who, when he was a very small child, moved to Holland. So he grew up in Amsterdam with French-speaking parents. So he has this really interesting blend of Parisian, French, and Dutch. His English, of course, is excellent. Every Dutchman I know who speaks English, you can barely hear an accent at all, which is why it was so hard to place him. Nicest guy in the world. Totally helped me out in a pinch. He told me he, he had to finish something, and then he'd put my car up on the lift, and he'd take a look and he'd see what it was. And it was interesting because at first, when we started talking, I think he expected that, like a, a lot of women, unfortunately, I had a very vague idea of what was going on. But the longer we talked, the more I was able to give him uh, detailed information. Like, I first noticed it on the highway, so I thought it was because I had radial tires and that they were driving on a grooved interstate or a grooved highway, and that was that noise. And he, his eyes perked up and he, he nodded. And I said, but then I was driving on a country road and I heard the same sound, so now I know it's not that. And so he started nodding and, and really paying attention and together just talking and asking questions, we eliminated a lot of possibilities. And it was one of those problem-solving things of, you know, I'm in a room that has nothing but joists and you know, paper-backed insulation on the ceiling. Hmm, how can I cover that without screw-gunning really lame paneling or drywall to the ceiling, which I don't want to do and which is expensive? Oh, I know. I can cover everything in white sheets and create a lighter room and an airier room and still a quiet room, which is great for podcasting. And so, you know, it's all crafty problem solving. He told me to go and get a Coke at the diner next door and come back in an hour. So I did. I got some work done and I came back and my car's up on the lift. And he said, it's your bearings. And I said, so is there a way to inject more grease into the bearings. Because I remember my grandfather having a pot of grease in his garage. And his garage looked exactly like this guy's fix-it shop. There's stuff. Every, it's 21 years of car parts and equipment and tools. It was awesome. So it turns out 
ladies, this is good for you to know, that the bearings are a one-piece piece. It's an inner collar that goes on the axle, and then you have your bearings and your grease all inside that with this outer part, which is the part that attaches to your wheel. This is the thing that lets it spin. This is the Lego piece (laughs) that you have to put the rubber tire on (laughs) in order to have a turning wheel on a Lego car. So it's kind of an important piece, right? And they're, they're made as a single sealed item so that you, you never have to lube it. You never have to deal with it until the grease just over time decays. Well, what happens then? The question is, if the grease goes away after 12 years, that would be that the metal, because of the friction, the metal will heat up enough to seize up, melt itself against itself these two parts, and it will, for all intents and purposes, weld itself to itself. And then your wheel stops turning while you're driving, probably fast because friction and heat. So I looked at him and said, so I need to do this now. And he said, you need to do this now. So there we are. So I got to stand there and watch him work. I didn't want to go back to the diner. Their air conditioning was lousy anyway, hotter than blazes, but I'm standing in the shade there's a breeze if you're standing out in front. And I got to watch him. Okay, this piece has been on that car for 12 years. So all the the water and the dust and the driving and the friction and everything had pretty much gunk welded this piece onto the axle. This man had to take a metal sledgehammer, a small one, not one of the big ones like you drive iron spikes through the railroads with and beat the bejujus out of that thing, it wouldn't budge. He had to get out the acetylene torch and light up the metal, heating up the metal on this piece around the axle to get it to soften enough to pound it off. It was amazing to watch this guy problem solve. And so I've got Irina's email in my brain. I've got this going in my brain. I've got the work that I've been doing in the attic room on my brain. And I thought, I am so lucky because the other thing I can do is I can go to you guys and say this. We have some windows in this place. And again, we're renting, so there's nothing permanent that I can or want to do. So there's some windows in the kitchen and in the bathroom that are rather low set, which in the kitchen is marvelous because you have the wide and deep uh, windowsill. So we can actually put things on it like flowers and basil and things like that growing in the window. And it's a lot of light. So it goes from hip height, maybe all the way up to above my head. And I'm five foot eight. So that's 68 inches, 172 centimeters. But it's a big, it's nice big windows. And there's two of them in the kitchen, but that's the side that faces the neighbors. And I don't necessarily want them watching me in my pajamas, making pancakes for the kids. So I thought, oh, you know, those little bistro curtains, what a perfect idea. I should just do that. So I went and I got a set of those, but the only ones I could find were linen, which are lovely and pricey. And I kept thinking, this is, this is simple stuff. This cannot be this difficult. So my question to you is twofold. Number one, do you have windows like this? And if so, is this the window treatment that you used to let in light, but kind of block 
people who might be walking by or, or your, your neighbors across the way from, from watching you. And part two, if you have those kind of deep window ledges, which are so marvelous for putting stuff on, how did you deal with the fact that the bistro curtains cover all of that? Is there another solution? Is there a better window treatment? I don't want to do shears because that's just not enough light for me. I really do need, I need the blue light bulbs. I need the ones that, that look the most like daylight, which is blue. And some of that I think is the seasonal affective disorder stuff. And some of it is just, it's like an odd light. I need to have the light that is going to be the truest. I don't like yellow light. It feels like the 1970s to me. It's just awful. So there, I said it. So the window treatment question is is a real one, and I'm not sold on the set of bistro curtains that I got. I'm holding on to the receipt. They're beautiful, but I know I could make them for less. But then it's, should I get a pattern? Because I, I know I could just cut out rectangles of fabric and loop it over and call it done. But I want them to look nice. And I need a set for the kitchen. And those are pretty wide windows. They're at, they've got to be at least 40 inches. And then the bathroom, narrower window, up a little higher, so they don't need to be quite as long. But again, you want light coming in and I don't know what to do. So crafty problem solving, patterns, suggestions, pictures. I am putting pictures of all of the stuff I've just talked about on the show notes so that you will be able to see relatively, you know, within reason, you'll be able to tell what the windows look like and how big they are and all that kind of stuff. I'm fascinated. I haven't had to do anything like this for the longest time. I mean, really, like since Brooklyn, because we've had curtains already pretty much everywhere we've gone, or we just didn't use curtains like in Arizona because we were kind of cloistered on our property and nobody could see in. And so the light's beautiful. So drama. It's a conundrum. And I look forward to your wisdom on that topic. Last thing I wanted to mention before we head into the book is in case you missed it, I've embedded some videos into the show notes for this week because Weird Al Yankovic has been releasing one new video every day in his eight days of humor. I can't remember what the hashtag is for it, but he has a new album that's out. He has been parodying lots of popular songs, as as you may know from having listened to him in the past. He did Pharrell Williams' Happy, which he did Tacky, and you will recognize lots of famous people in that video. He has a parody of Robin Thicke's Opus. <laughs> blurred lines. His is word crimes. And this is when I realized, oh, I, I have to put this up for you. It is the funniest grammar lesson you will ever, ever see. And it's, <laughs> it's just, it's just wonderful. Even if you don't think you like Weird Al, and especially if you think you don't like the song Blurred Lines, it's far too catchy. And when you remove the blurred lines lyrics, and insert some great grammar lyrics. It's so much fun. And then last night's was Foil, which was a parody of Lord's Royals. There will come a part where you think, wow, no, I don't get it. Where, where is he going with this? He's totally gone off track. 
and he brings it back and it'll just make you laugh. So there are more to come. I will keep linking to them, but I won't be able to tell you about them because they haven't come out yet when I'm recording. But he's so good at making the music sound like the music and then coming up with these lyrics, rhymes that are just worthy of Howard Ashman. (laughs) And the stuff he makes fun of, it's just, you know, life is hard and you deserve a smile. And so there's a bunch of smiles on the show notes this week. And now book. So you may recall the end of the last chapter was important. Uh, Mr. Thornton had come over to visit Mr. Hale. He this time actually did look at Margaret and saw how, how overcome with grief she was and sat and talked to Mr. Hale with her in the room until Dixon came and announced that someone was there to see Margaret. And that was the detective, the police officer, who let her know that Leonard's had died. She left that meeting, went up to the study, and fell fell down dead. Dead swoon. She she probably clonked herself pretty well on the head when she fell. So she's she has knocked herself out. And that's where we pick up with the story. Those two scenes, uh, Thornton and Hale talking and Margaret completely passed out. We already talked a little bit about Margaret's strange fire early on in this chapter. And the last week's set of chapters felt to me like a, a pretty big turning point. But that strange fire moment in this chapter seems like it kind of finishes the turn for Margaret. I don't think she recognizes it necessarily, but I think it's becoming clearer to us. Well, she's, she starts to recognize something at the end of this chapter. And that is one of the things that makes this such a, a an interesting listen, because Margaret will start the chapter with a, a very decided, determined attitude in one direction. And then due to things that happen during the chapter, by the end, she has absolutely turned on a dime. And everything is different for her, which is always interesting and fun to watch, but can also be a little melodramatic sometimes. So there's a bit of hand wringing in this episode and a bit of back of the hand to the forehead moments. But there's also very much some, some teenage boy moments from Mr. Thornton. And at first I kind of thought, oh, he'd never, he'd never think like that. He'd never behave like that. And then I thought, well, wait a minute, you know, how much, how much practice does he have with falling for someone? You know, if if we go through our teenage years and our early 20s actively dating people, more than one person, then by the time you've gotten to Mr. Thornton's age, you're kind of inured to some of the more dramatic mood swings that accompany a a first infatuation or a first love. But I don't think Mr. Thornton has had that happen before. So a, a lot of his emotions, while they seem to me at my ripe old age to be very young and almost silly, I think Gaskell's probably closer to the truth of how a man like him, especially a man like him who's been working so hard and sacrificing so much to get ahead, might respond to falling in love with someone who doesn't love him back. And then there's a statement uh, later in the chapter about finding a packet on the point of sailing. And that's just a ship that's about to leave. And it will make more sense now when you hear that. 
there are two, count them, two instances of foreign language quotations in this chapter. The first comes from Dante's La Vita Nuova, and the translation is a soothing spirit that is full of love, saying forever to the soul, O sigh, which I say a lot, sigh, when things just keep going the way you really did not want them to go, sigh. There was a show at UCLA the first year I was there called Feast of Youth, and it was the story of when F. Scott Fitzgerald met Zelda Sayer. And Julie Pickering played Zelda Sayer. Wow, I am pulling this out of nowhere. And in one of her lines, every so often when the men were, you know, flirting with Zelda, trying to get her to go out with him, she'd be standing there listening politely, and then she'd just say, Yawn. <laughs> and I always thought, I have never had the guts to do that, but gosh, that would have been fun to be that person who could do that. I could have saved a lot of time. But the other quotation in question comes a little bit later in the chapter. We've heard this quotation before. It's French. We heard it back in chapter 25, volume 125. And the translation for the French is, do what you should do, come what may. And now, you know, that makes some sense owing to what Margaret has been through in the previous couple of chapters. Oh, and the last bit. Dolores is based on the word dolor, which is sadness or to be sad. So you could make puns about the name of Frederick's love down in Spain. So as far as I'm going, and uh, I think it's time to play you the chapter. And I'll, I'll catch you on the flip side. We'll have a little chat. Here you go. Chapter 35 or volume two, chapter 10 of North and South by Elizabeth Gaskell. Chapter 35 Expiation There's naught so finely spun, but it cometh to the sun. Mr. Thornton sat on and on. He felt that his company gave pleasure to Mr. Hale, and was touched by the half-spoken wishful entreaty that he would remain a little longer. The plaintive, Don't go yet! which his poor friend put forth from time to time. He wondered Margaret did not return, but it was with no view of seeing her that he lingered. For the hour, and in the presence of one who was so thoroughly feeling the nothingness of earth, he was reasonable and self-controlled. He was deeply interested in all her father said, of death and of the heavy lull and of the brain that has grown dull. It was curious how the presence of Mr. Thornton had power over Mr. Hale to make him unlock the secret thoughts which he kept shut up even from Margaret. Whether it was that her sympathy would be so keen and show itself in so lively a manner that he was afraid of the reaction upon himself, or whether it was that to his speculative mind all kinds of doubts presented themselves at such a time, 
pleading and crying aloud to be resolved into certainties, and that he knew she would have shrunk from the expression of any such doubts, nay, from him himself as capable of conceiving them. Whatever was the reason, he could unburden himself better to Mr. Thornton than to her, of all the thoughts and fancies and fears that had been frost-bound in his brain till now. Mr. Thornton said very little, but every sentence he uttered added to Mr. Hale's reliance and regard for him. Was it that he paused in the expression of some remembered agony? Mr. Thornton's two or three words would complete the sentence and show how deeply its meaning was entered into. Was it a doubt, a fear, a wandering uncertainty seeking rest, but finding none, so tear-blinded were its eyes? Mr. Thornton, instead of being shocked, seemed to have passed through that very stage of thought himself, and could suggest where the exact ray of light was to be found which should make the dark places plain. Man of action as he was, busy in the world's great battle, there was a deeper religion binding him to God in his heart, in spite of his strong willfulness, through all his mistakes, than Mr. Hale had ever dreamed. They never spoke of such things again, as it happened. But this one conversation made them peculiar people to each other, knit them together in a way which no loose, indiscriminate talking about sacred things can ever accomplish. When all are admitted, how can there be a holy of holies? And all this while, Margaret lay as still and white as death on the study floor. She had sunk under her burden. It had been heavy in weight and long carried, and she had been very meek and patient, till all at once her faith had given way and she had groped in vain for help. There was a pitiful contraction of suffering upon her beautiful brows, although there was no other sign of consciousness remaining. The mouth, a little while ago so sullenly projected in defiance, was relaxed and livid. The first symptom of returning life was a quivering about the lips, a little mute, soundless attempt at speech, but the eyes were still closed, and the quivering sank into stillness. Then, feebly leaning on her arms for an instant to steady herself, Margaret gathered herself up and rose. Her comb had fallen out of her hair, and with an intuitive desire to efface the traces of weakness and bring herself into order again, she sought for it although from time to time, in the course of the search, she had to sit down and recover strength. Her head drooped forwards, her hands meekly laid one upon the other. She tried to recall the force of her temptation by endeavouring to remember the details which had thrown her into such deadly fright, but she could not. She only understood two facts— that Frederick had been in danger of being pursued and detected in London as not only guilty of manslaughter, but as the more unpardonable leader of the mutiny, and that she had lied to save him. There was one comfort. Her lie had saved him, if only by gaining some additional time. If the inspector came again tomorrow, after she had received the letter she longed for to assure her of her brother's safety, she would brave shame and stand in her bitter penance. She, the lofty Margaret, acknowledging before a crowded justice room, if need were, that she had been as a dog and done this thing. But 
if he came before she heard from Frederick. If he returned, as he had half-threatened in a few hours, why, she would tell that lie again. Though how the words would come out after all this terrible pause for reflection and self-reproach without betraying her falsehood, she did not know. She could not tell. But her repetition of it would gain time. Time for Frederick. She was roused by Dixon's entrance into the room. She had just been letting out Mr. Thornton. He had hardly gone ten steps in the street before a passing omnibus stopped close by him, and a man got down and came up to him, touching his hat as he did so. It was the police inspector. Mr. Thornton had obtained for him his first situation in the police, and had heard from time to time of the progress of his protégé, but they had not often met, and at first Mr. Thornton did not remember him. My name is Watson, George Watson, sir, that you got. Ah, yes, I recollect. Why, you are getting on famously, I hear. Yes, sir, I ought to thank you, sir, but it is on a little matter of business I made so bold as to speak to you now. I believe you were the magistrate who attended to take down the deposition of a poor man who died in the infirmary last night. Yes, replied Mr. Thornton. I went and heard some kind of a rambling statement, which the clerk said was of no great use. I'm afraid he was but a drunken fella, though there is no doubt he came to his death by violence at last. One of my mother's servants was engaged to him, I believe, and she is in great distress today. What about him? Why, sir, his death is oddly mixed up with somebody in the house I saw you coming out of just now. It was a Mr. Ailes, I believe. Yes, said Mr. Thornton, turning sharp round and looking into the inspector's face with sudden interest. What about it? Well, sir, it seems to me that I've got a pretty distinct chain of evidence inculpating a gentleman who was walking with Miss Ailes that night at the Outwood Station as the man who struck or pushed Leonard's off the platform and so caused his death. But the young lady denies that she was there at the time. Miss L. denies she was there, repeated Mr. Thornton in an altered voice. Tell me, what evening was it? What time? About six o'clock on the evening of Thursday the 26th. They walked on, side by side, in silence for a minute or two. The inspector was the first to speak. You see, sir? There is like to be a coroner's inquest, and I've got a young man who is pretty positive. At least it was at first, since he has heard of the young lady's denial, he says he should not like to swear. But still, he's pretty positive that he saw Miss Ale at the station, walking about with a gentleman, not five minutes before the time when one of the porters saw a scuffle, which he set down to some of Leonard's impudence, but which led to the fall which caused his death. And seeing you come out of the very house, sir, I thought I might make bold to ask if, you see, it's always awkward having to do with cases of disputed identity, and one doesn't like to doubt the word of a respectable young woman unless one has strong proof to the contrary. And she denied having been at the station that evening, repeated Mr. Thornton in a low, brooding tone. Yes, sir, twice over, as distinct as could be. I told her I should call again, but 
seeing you just as I was on my way back from questioning the young man who said it was her, I thought I would ask your advice, both as the magistrate who saw Leonard's on his deathbed and as the gentleman who got me my berth in the force. You were quite right, said Mr. Thornton. Don't take any steps till you have seen me again. The young lady will expect me to call from what I said. I only want to delay you an hour. It's no three. Come to my warehouse at four. Very well, sir. And they parted company. Mr. Thornton hurried to his warehouse and, sternly forbidding his clerks to allow anyone to interrupt him, he went his way to his own private room and locked the door. Then he indulged himself in the torture of thinking it all over and realizing every detail. How could he have lulled himself into the unsuspicious calm in which her tearful image had mirrored itself not two hours before, till he had weakly pitied her and yearned towards her and forgotten the savage, distrustful jealousy with which the sight of her and that unknown to him, at such an hour, in such a place, had inspired him? How could one so pure have stooped from her decorous and noble manner of bearing? But was it decorous? Was it? He hated himself for the idea that forced itself upon him, just for an instant, no more, and yet, while it was present, thrilled him with its odd potency of attraction towards her image. And then this falsehood, how terrible must be some dread of shame to be revealed, for, after all, the provocation given by such a man as Leonard's was, when excited by drinking, might in all probability be more than enough to justify anyone who came forward to state the circumstances openly and without reserve. How creeping and deadly that fear which could bow down the truthful Margaret to falsehood. He could almost pity her. What would be the end of it? She could not have considered all she was entering upon. If there was an inquest and the young man came forward, suddenly he started up. There should be no inquest. He would save Margaret. He would take the responsibility of preventing the inquest, the issue of which, from the uncertainty of the medical testimony, which he had vaguely heard the night before from the surgeon in attendance, could be but doubtful. The doctors had discovered an internal disease far advanced and sure to prove fatal. They had stated that death might have been accelerated by the fall or by the subsequent drinking and exposure to cold. If he had but known how Margaret would have become involved in the affair, if he had but foreseen that she would have stained her whiteness by a falsehood, he could have saved her by a word. For the question, of inquest or no inquest, had hung trembling in the balance only the night before. Miss Hale might love another was indifferent and contemptuous to him, but he would yet do her faithful acts of service of which she should never know. He might despise her, but the woman whom he had once loved should be kept from shame, and shame it would be to pledge herself to a lie in a public court, or otherwise to stand and acknowledge her reason for desiring darkness rather than light. Very grey and stern did Mr. Thornton look as he passed out through his wandering clocks. He was away about half an hour, and scarcely less stern did he look when he returned, although his errand had been successful. He wrote two lines on a slip of paper, 
put it in an envelope and sealed it up. Then he gave it to one of the clerks, saying, I appointed Watson. He was a packer in the warehouse and who went into the police to call on me at four o'clock. I've just met with a gentleman from Liverpool who wishes to see me before he leaves town. Take care to give this note to Watson, he calls. The note contained these words. There will be no inquest. Medical evidence not sufficient to justify it. Take no further steps. I've not seen the coroner, but I will take the responsibility. Well, thought Watson, it relieves me from an awkward job. None of my witnesses seem certain of anything except the young woman. She was clear and distinct enough. The porter at the railroad had seen a scuffle, or when he found it was likely to bring him in as a witness, then it might not have been a scuffle, only a little larkin, and Leonard's might have jumped off the platform himself. He would not stick firm to anything. And Jennings, the grocer shopman, well, he was not quite so bad, but I doubt if I could have got him up to an oath after he heard that Miss Ale flatly denied it. It would have been a troublesome job and no satisfaction. And now I must go and tell them they won't be wanted. He accordingly presented himself again at Mr. Hale's that evening. Her father and Dixon would fain have persuaded Margaret to go to bed, but they, neither of them, knew the reason for her low, continued refusals to do so. Dixon had learnt part of the truth, but only part. Margaret would not tell any human being of what she had said, and she did not reveal the fatal termination to Leonard's fall from the platform. So, Dixon's curiosity combined with her allegiance to urge Margaret to go to rest, which her appearance, as she lay on the sofa, showed but too clearly that she required. She did not speak except when spoken to. She tried to smile back and reply to her father's anxious looks and words of tender enquiry, but instead of a smile, the wan lips resolved themselves into a sigh. He was so miserably uneasy that, at last, she consented to go into her own room and prepare for going to bed. She was indeed inclined to give up the idea that the inspector would call again that night, as it was already past nine o'clock. She stood by her father, holding on to the back of his chair. You will go to bed soon, Papa, won't you? Don't sit up alone. What his answer was, she did not hear. The words were lost in the far smaller point of sound that magnified itself to her fears and filled her brain. There was a low ring at the doorbell. She kissed her father and glided downstairs with a rapidity of motion of which no one would have thought her capable who had seen her the minute before. She put aside Dixon. Don't come. I will open the door. I know it is him. I can't. I must manage it all myself. As you please, miss, said Dixon testily, but in a moment afterwards she added, But you're not fit for it. You are more dead than alive. Am I? said Margaret, turning round and showing her eyes all aglow with strange fire, her cheeks flushed, though her lips were baked and livid still. She opened the door to the inspector and preceded him into the study. She placed the candle on the table and snuffed it carefully before she turned round and faced him. You are late, said she. Well? She held her breath for the answer. 
I'm sorry to have given any unnecessary trouble, ma'am, for, after all, they've given up all thoughts of holding an inquest. I've had other work to do and other people to see, or I should have been here before now. Then it is ended, said Margaret. There is to be no further enquiry. I believe I've got Mr. Thornton's note about me, said the inspector, fumbling in his pocketbook. Mr. Thornton's, said Margaret. Yes, he's a magistrate. Ah, here it is. She could not see to read it. No, not although she was close to the candle. The words swam before her. But she held it in her hand and looked at it as if she were intently studying it. I'm sure, ma'am, it's a great weight off my mind, for the evidence was so uncertain, you see, that the man had received any blow at all, and if any question of identity came in, it so complicated the case as I told Mr. Thornton. Mr. Thornton, said Margaret again. I met him this morning just as he was coming out of this house, and as he's an old friend of mine, besides being the magistrate who saw Leonard's last night, I made bold to tell him of my difficulty. Margaret sighed deeply. She did not want to hear any more. She was afraid alike of what she had heard and of what she might hear. She wished that the man would go. She forced herself to speak. Thank you for calling. It is very late. I dare say it is past ten o'clock. Oh, here is the note, she continued, suddenly interpreting the meaning of the hand held out to receive it. He was putting it up when she said, I think it is a cramped, dazzling sort of writing. I could not read it. Will you just read it to me? He read it aloud to her. Thank you. You told Mr. Thornton that I was not there. Oh, of course, ma'am. I'm sorry now that I acted upon information which seems to have been so erroneous. At first the young man was so positive, and now he says that he doubted all along and hopes that his mistake won't have occasioned you such annoyance as to lose their shop your custom. Good night, ma'am. Good night. She rang the bell for Dixon to show him out. As Dixon returned up the passage, Margaret passed her swiftly. It is all right, said she, without looking at Dixon and before the woman could follow her with further questions, she had sped upstairs and entered her bedchamber and bolted her door. She threw herself, dressed as she was, upon her bed. She was too much exhausted to think. Half an hour or more elapsed before the cramped nature of her position and the chilliness, supervening upon great fatigue, had the power to rouse her numbed faculties. Then she began to recall, to combine, to wonder. The first idea that presented itself to her was that all this sickening alarm on Frederick's behalf was over, that the strain was past. The next was a wish to remember every word of the inspectors which related to Mr. Thornton. When had he seen him? What had he said? What had Mr. Thornton done? What were the exact words of his note? And until she could recollect, even to the placing or omitting an article, the very expressions which he had used in the note, her mind refused to go on with its progress. But the next conviction she came to was clear enough. Mr. Thornton had seen her close to Outwood Station on the fatal Thursday night, and had been told of her denial that she was there. 
she stood as a liar in his eyes. She was a liar, but she had no thought of penitence before God. Nothing but chaos and night surrounded the one lurid fact that, in Mr. Thornton's eyes, she was degraded. She cared not to think, even to herself, of how much of excuse she might plead. That had nothing to do with Mr. Thornton. She never dreamed that he or anyone else could find cause for suspicion in what was so natural as her accompanying her brother. But what was really false and wrong was known to him, and he had a right to judge her. Oh, Frederick, Frederick, she cried. What have I not sacrificed for you? Even when she fell asleep, her thoughts were compelled to travel the same circle only with exaggerated and monstrous circumstances of pain. When she awoke, a new idea flashed upon her with all the brightness of the morning. Mr. Thornton had learnt her falsehood before he went to the coroner. That suggested the thought that he had possibly been influenced so to do with a view of sparing her the repetition of her denial. But she pushed this notion on one side with the sick willfulness of a child. If it were so, she felt no gratitude to him, as it only showed her how keenly he must have seen that she was disgraced already before he took such unwanted pains to spare her any further trial of truthfulness which had already failed so signally. She would have gone through the whole. She would have perjured herself to save Frederick, rather, far rather than Mr. Thornton should have had the knowledge that prompted him to interfere to save her. What ill fate brought him in contact with the inspector? What made him be the very magistrate sent for to receive Leonard's deposition? What had Leonard said? How much of it was intelligible to Mr. Thornton, who might already, for aught she knew, be aware of the old accusation against Frederick through their mutual friend, Mr. Bell. If so, he had striven to save the son who came in defiance of the law to attend his mother's deathbed. And, under this idea, she could feel grateful. Not yet, if ever she could, if his interference had been prompted by contempt. Oh! Had anyone such just cause to feel contempt for her? Mr. Thornton, above all people, on whom she had looked down from her imaginary heights till now. She suddenly found herself at his feet and was strangely distressed at her fall. She shrank from following out the premises to their conclusion and so acknowledging to herself how much she valued his respect and good opinion. Whenever this idea presented itself to her at the end of a long avenue of thoughts, she turned away from following that path. She would not believe in it. It was later than she fancied, for in the agitation of the previous night she had forgotten to wind up her watch, and Mr. Hale had given especial orders that she was not to be disturbed by the usual awakening. By and by the door opened cautiously, and Dixon put her head in. Perceiving that Margaret was awake, she came forwards with a letter. Here's something to do you good, miss. A letter from Master Frederick. Thank you, Dixon. How late it is. She spoke very languidly and suffered Dixon to lay it on the counterpane before her without putting out a hand to take it. You want your breakfast, I'm sure. I'll bring it to you in a minute. Master's got the tray all ready, I know. Margaret did not reply. She let her go. She felt that she must be alone before she could open that letter. 
she opened it at last. The first thing that caught her eye was the date two days earlier than she received it. He had then written when he had promised, and their alarm might have been spared. But she would read the letter and see. It was hasty enough, but perfectly satisfactory. He had seen Henry Lennox, who knew enough of the case to shake his head over it in the first instance, and tell him he had done a very daring thing in returning to England with such an accusation, backed by such powerful influence hanging over him. But when they had come to talk it over, Mr. Lennox had acknowledged that there might be some chance of his acquittal if he could but prove his statements by credible witnesses that in such case it might be worthwhile to stand his trial, otherwise it would be a great risk. He would examine, he would take every pains. It struck me, said Frederick, that your introduction, little sister of mine, went a long way. Is it so? He made many inquiries, I can assure you. He seemed a sharp, intelligent fellow, and in good practice, too, to judge from the signs of business and the number of clerks about him. But these may be only lawyers' dodges. I have just caught a packet on the point of sailing. I am off in five minutes. I may have to come back to England again on this business, so keep my visit secret. I shall send my father some rare old sherry, such as you cannot buy in England, such stuff as I've got in the bottle before me. He needs something of the kind. My dear love to him. God bless him. I'm sure. Here's my cab. P.S. What an escape that was. Take care you don't breathe of my having been, not even to the shores. Margaret turned to the envelope. It was marked, Too Late. The letter had probably been trusted to some careless waiter who had forgotten to post it. Oh, what slight cobwebs of chances stand between us and temptation. Frederick had been safe and out of England twenty, nay, thirty hours ago. And it was only about seventeen hours since she had told a falsehood to baffle pursuit, which even then would have been vain. How faithless she had been. Where now was her proud motto, Fais ce que doit, advienne que pourra. If she had but dared to bravely tell the truth as regarded herself, defying them to find out what she refused to tell concerning another, how light of heart she would now have felt. Not humbled before God, as having failed in trust towards him, not degraded and abased in Mr. Thornton's sight. She caught herself up at this with a miserable tremor. Here was she classing his low opinion of her alongside with the displeasure of God. How was it that he haunted her imagination so persistently? What could it be? Why did she care for what he thought, in spite of all her pride, in spite of herself? She believed that she could have borne the sense of almighty displeasure because he knew all and could read her penitence and hear her cries for help in time to come. But Mr. Thornton, why did she tremble and hide her face in the pillow? What strong feeling had overtaken her at last? She sprang out of bed and prayed long and earnestly. It soothed and comforted her so to open her heart. But as soon as she reviewed her position, she found the sting was still there, that she was not good enough nor pure enough to be indifferent to the lowered opinion of a fellow creature. 
that the thought of how he must be looking upon her with contempt stood between her and her sense of wrongdoing. She took her letter into her father as soon as she was dressed. There was so slight an allusion to their alarm at the railroad station that Mr. Hale passed over it without paying any attention to it. Indeed, beyond the mere fact of Frederick having sailed undiscovered and unsuspected, he did not gather much from the letter at the time. He was so uneasy about Margaret's pallid looks. She seemed continually on the point of weeping. You are sadly overdone, Margaret. It is no wonder. But you must let me nurse you now. He made her lie down on the sofa and went for a shawl to cover her with. His tenderness released her tears, and she cried bitterly. Poor child, poor child, said he, looking fondly at her as she lay with her face to the wall, shaking with her sobs. After a while they ceased, and she began to wonder whether she durst give herself the relief of telling her father of all her trouble. But there were more reasons against it than for it. The only one for it was the relief to herself, and against it was the thought that it would add materially to her father's nervousness if it were indeed necessary for Frederick to come to England again, that he would dwell on the circumstance of his son's having caused the death of a man, however unwittingly and unwillingly, that this knowledge would perpetually recur to trouble him in various shapes of exaggeration and distortion from the simple truth and about her own great fault he would be distressed beyond measure at her want of courage and faith, yet perpetually troubled to make excuses for her. Formerly Margaret would have come to him as priest as well as father, to tell him of her temptation and her sin, but latterly they had not spoken much on such subjects, and she knew not how, in his change of opinions, he would reply if the depth of her soul called unto his. No, she would keep her secret and bear the burden alone. Alone she would go before God and cry for his absolution. Alone she would endure her disgraced position in the opinion of Mr. Thornton. She was unspeakably touched by the tender efforts of her father to think of cheerful subjects on which to talk, and so to take her thoughts away from dwelling on all that had happened of late. It was some months since he had been so talkative as he was this day. He would not let her sit up, and offended Dixon desperately by insisting on waiting upon her himself. At last she smiled, a poor, weak little smile, but it gave him the truest pleasure. It seems strange to think that what gives us most hope for the future should be called Dolores, said Margaret. The remark was more in character with her father than with her usual self, but today they seem to have changed natures. Her mother was a Spaniard, I believe. That accounts for her religion. Her father was a stiff Presbyterian when I knew him. But it is a very soft and pretty name. How young she is, younger by fourteen months than I am, just the age that Edith was when she was engaged to Captain Lennox. Papa, we will go and see them in Spain. He shook his head. But, he said, if you wish it, Margaret, only let us come back here. It would seem unfair, unkind to your mother, who always, I'm afraid, disliked Milton so much. If we left it now, she is lying here and cannot go with us. 
No, dear, you shall go and see them and bring me back a report of my Spanish daughter. No, Papa, I won't go without you. Who is to take care of you when I'm gone? I should like to know which of us is taking care of the other. But if you went, I should persuade Mr. Thornton to let me give him double lessons. We would work up the classics famously. That would be a perpetual interest. You might go on and see Edith at Corfu if you liked. Margaret did not speak all at once. Then she said, rather gravely, Thank you, Papa, but I don't want to go. We will hope that Mr. Lennox will manage so well that Frederick may bring Dolores to see us when they are married. And as for Edith, the regiment won't remain much longer in Corfu. Perhaps we shall see both of them here before another year is out. Mr. Hale's cheerful subjects had come to an end. Some painful recollection had stolen across his mind and driven him into silence. By and by, Margaret said, Papa, did you see Nicholas Higgins at the funeral? He was there, and Mary too. Poor fellow. It was his way of showing sympathy. He has a good warm heart under his bluff, abrupt ways. I am sure of it, replied Mr. Hale. I saw it all along even while you tried to persuade me that he was all sorts of bad things. We will go and see them tomorrow, if you are strong enough to walk so far. Oh, yes, I want to see them. We did not pay Mary, or rather she refused to take it, Dixon says. We will go so as to catch him just after his dinner and before he goes to his work. Towards evening, Mr. Hale said, I half expected Mr. Thornton would have called. He spoke of a book yesterday which he had and which I wanted to see. He said he would try and bring it today. Margaret sighed. She knew he would not come. He would be too delicate to run the chance of meeting her while her shame must be so fresh in his memory. The very mention of his name renewed her trouble and produced a relapse into the feeling of depressed, preoccupied exhaustion. She gave way to listless languor. Suddenly, it struck her that this was a strange manner to show her patience or to reward her father for his watchful care of her all through the day. She sat up and offered to read aloud. His eyes were failing, and he gladly accepted her proposal. She read well. She gave the due emphasis. But had anyone asked her when she had ended the meaning of what she had been reading, she could not have told. She was smitten with a feeling of ingratitude to Mr. Thornton, inasmuch as, in the morning, she had refused to accept the kindness he had shown her in making further inquiry from the medical men so as to obviate any inquest being held. Oh, she was grateful. She had been cowardly and false, and had shown her cowardliness and falsehood in action that could not be recalled. But she was not ungrateful. It sent a glow to her heart to know how she could feel towards one who had reason to despise her. His cause for contempt was so just that she should have respected him less if she had thought he did not feel contempt. It was a pleasure to feel how thoroughly she respected him. He could not prevent her doing that. It was the one comfort in all this misery. Late in the evening the expected book arrived 
with Mr. Thornton's kind regards and wishes to know how Mr. Hale is. Say that I am much better, Dixon, but that Miss Hale— No, Papa, said Margaret eagerly. Don't say anything about me. He does not ask. My dear child, how you are shivering, said her father a few minutes afterwards. You must go to bed directly. You have turned quite pale. Margaret did not refuse to go, though she was loath to leave her father alone. She needed the relief of solitude after a day of busy thinking and busier repenting. But she seemed much as usual the next day. The lingering gravity and sadness and the occasional absence of mind were not unnatural symptoms in the early days of grief. And almost in proportion to her re-establishment in health was her father's relapse into his abstracted musing upon the wife he had lost and the past era in his life that was closed to him forever. So Thornton has a reason to still love her because he can save her, which is a little gross, but also that tormented teenage boy, you'll never know what I've done for you and how much I really love you. And it's sweet. It's sweet. I admit, I find it sweet. The rescuing thing. It is what it is. It's such a product of its time, right? And it still happens. I know. I know. But Margaret's turnabout at the end, at the very, very end, I found interesting. Because it starts with her feeling bad for not being more grateful to her father for taking care of her. Finally. I know. I know. And then that thought of being taken care of leads her to, oh my gosh, Mr. Thornton just took care of me as well, and in a, a big and serious way, saving her from public shame. Now, Thornton may have had the ulterior motive of wanting to save her from public shame because he still hopes that she's going to fall in love with him, and he doesn't want her to be ruined <laughs> publicly if if there's a chance of that happening. But for her, now that she knows that Frederick is safe, and and realizes that she just got word too late. And by the way, that uh, she turned the envelope over and sees that it said too late. That means it was too late for the, the mail. So it just sat there until the next mail pickup happened. And that was just long enough. But since she found out that, that Frederick was safe too late, she could have spared herself all of this. And she's, she's trying to talk her, herself into believing that if she'd just been less cowardly or braver, and just stood up to tell the truth, not even knowing whether Frederick was safe or not, that, that that would have been better. But I, boy, I think she's being too hard on herself in that instance, which isn't a surprise right now. But I think her recognition that Thornton has every reason to be really ticked off at her right now, because he has to know that she lied, and she knows he saw her with Frederick. And she knows he was upset about something when he saw her with Frederick. But I, I don't think she has completely put two and two together to think that Thornton is jealous of Frederick. Because to her, it would never occur to her that someone would see her with Frederick and think, oh, he's your, he's your beau, he's your, he's your boyfriend. But the lying thing, she knows Thornton knows. And she feels that one of the reasons she can respect him is because he must be holding her to this high moral standard and therefore have contempt for her because of her lying. And because of his contempt for her, she respects him more 
because that shows excellent moral character, something that she very much respects. <laughs> That's a conundrum wrapped around a pickle right there. And I love that she includes the thought he could not prevent her from doing that, from thoroughly respecting him. It was the one comfort in all this misery. He couldn't prevent her from respecting him like he would. Like he'd prevent her from doing anything except putting herself up on charges of perjury by swearing false testimony at an inquest. Maybe. Maybe he'd prevent her from doing that. And as, as I was thumbing back through my notes, I caught something just now. M my book, which has the listing as volume one and volume two and, and all those chapter numbers that way, lists the title of this chapter as explanation, which I thought was kind of odd. It's actually supposed to be expiation. And that makes a lot more sense because instead of explaining things in this chapter, expiation means the act of making amends or reparation for guilt or wrongdoing, atonement, especially towards a deity. Which makes a lot more sense for this chapter, doesn't it? And then, and then the chapter ends with everything going back to normal. Her father goes back to his grief-stricken state. And she, she goes back to her own kind of vague. You know, grief is such a weird thing. Days, days don't behave like days when you're in the middle of that. Time, time passes differently and strangely. And so at the end, even with all the excitement and all the hubbub, by the end of the chapter, we are reminded that this is just a family who is mourning the loss of, of a wife and a mother. And that is where Gaskell ends it, and that is where I will end it as well. Oh, except, except, don't forget the Stampington raffle for the copy of Stuffed and the two copies of Somerset Life that I am raffling off for you so you can enjoy them. Follow the link in the show notes, and I'll talk to you next week. Have a great one. Bye. Like Craftlet? Leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher Radio, like us on Facebook, or leave a link to us when you comment on literary blogs. You can listen via iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Craftlet.com, or our dedicated Android, iOS, and Windows 8 app. You can use the same free Craftlet app to access premium subscriber content on the go. Craftlet is and has been made possible by the support of its listeners. And for that, I am truly grateful. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on.